Hey, hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on with Kierkegaard. Uh, that is because this text, The Sickness Unto Death, is really a necessary sequel or a necessary continuation of what he gives us in the concept of anxiety. But before jumping into that, if you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in an accessible way to help you along in your philosophical journey. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe so you can see my videos that I release every week, sometimes twice a week, and then you can come back and, and that would obviously be great. If you want to follow me anywhere other than on YouTube here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy to see mostly pictures of my cats if you're into that. If you're listening to this on YouTube or if you found me on YouTube, you'll be able to find me anywhere you get podcasts as well, where there shouldn't be any ads, which is great, of course. If you're listening to this in podcast form, sometimes I release videos on YouTube, uh, which, you know, if you're into that, then that's there as well. And if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, which would obviously be, be greatly appreciated, uh, but no pressure. And yeah, let's jump into Sickness Unto Death, which is a very important continuation to what he develops in the concept of anxiety. So I want to begin with a point that the editors make. Uh, from this text, at least in my version, and the editors are Howard Hong and Edna Hong, in which they say that Kierkegaard is here concerned with a stage beyond anxiety. Here he thinks to move beyond anxiety to what he labels, at least in the English translation, he calls despair. And whereas in the concept of anxiety, he showed that we can presuppose both sin and anxiety, here we can also presuppose despair. Now, despair is only alleviated really uh, when one subscribes to who they are meant to be, aligning themselves with God's will. So like I think I stressed enough in the concept of anxiety, it's not about just learning what kind of like uh, pizza is your favorite. Like that's not what we are concerned with here. We are not concerned with superficial life choices like whether or not you should go into engineering versus um, something in the arts, for example. What we are concerned with here is finding out who you are in accordance with the, I guess, the relationship between body, mind, and spirit as those exist under the criterion of God. That is, as they are produced and kind of maintained through God's will. Now, I want to say where this leads. That is, I want to kind of give uh, the, the spoiler here. And that is because, or that is that for Kierkegaard, the ultimate solution to this phenomenon of despair, very much like anxiety, is faith. Faith is what can take us out of despair into uh, the divine to some extent, where he writes that faith in relating itself to itself and in willing to be itself, the self rests transparently in the power that established it, that is in God. And remember that spirit from the concept of anxiety is really defined, well, actually it's from this, but I, I use this text to explain spirit from the concept of anxiety. But as I presented in that episode, spirit is the self relating to itself as a relation, as the thing that kind of glues together body uh, and, and mind that glues together the temporal and the eternal, the finite and the, and the infinite for just a few, uh, few examples. Now here we start with the preface, in which Kierkegaard emphasizes that his project is meant to upbuild, and and he's using this term in, in a Christian sense, uh, that is because it is a Christian heroism 
to become oneself alone before God. And this is to be earnest. So the task here is a Christian one. And if it sounds like Kierkegaard is just some like pastor, then you're right. Like that is for the most part what he's doing here. He's really uh, proclaiming the wonder that is gospel and what we can learn from it in terms of his project here and what it means to be both connected to oneself as a self and oneself as connected to world history, to, to humanity, and to humanity's uh, history. So what does he mean by sickness unto death? Well, sickness unto death, he means despair. The dis despair is sickness, and death as the expression for the state of deepest spiritual wretchedness. To this, the cure is to die in the world, which is obviously a weird thing to say. How can, how can dying be good? But it is to alleviate one from that despair. Now, I'm going to put a pin in this because uh, he's going to, you know, nuance this. It isn't about uh, wishing one's own death, not at all. But in the way that despair kind of confronts us, it seems as though death is the only solution because despair is presupposed. It seems to always be with us and it can't seem to be alleviated by anything other than despair, but a, or by death, I should say. But of course, he'll come to say that faith can be a force to undo the burden of despair, which propels us here into the introduction, where he begins with Christ's, Jesus Christ's proclamation that Lazarus, who was at the time sick, and this is a biblical story, was not sick unto death. He was then, he could then be resurrected. So Lazarus was, was resurrected. So literally he didn't die because he was resurrected. So he wasn't actually sick unto death. And he, I, I don't know what sickness he had, let's say leprosy. For example, I don't know if that's what it actually was, but Lazarus had leprosy uh, and he was not, according to Christ, sick unto death because he was resurrected, literally. So he didn't actually die. But more abstractly, that is, if we don't think of it in terms of uh, the fact that Lazarus was literally resurrected, so he didn't die. He didn't die because to die, <laughs> in the Christian sense, is only to continue life. So in Christianity, had Lazarus died, then he wouldn't have actually died because he would have his soul lives on in heaven for those that follow uh, Christian doctrine. So not even death in this sense, that is the death of the physical body, is a real sickness unto death because death just doesn't mark the end. It marks the continuation into one's entrance into heaven uh, or whatever. So the real sickness unto death, that is the real thing that marks one being pointed toward their end, is despair. And so the Christian person, they're essentially privy to the worst horrors, making the world more manageable than for someone who is ignorant. So because they are aware of the fact that despair is something that uh, kind of forecloses possibility, that is, it points us towards an end point, not towards salvation in the form of death or resurrection into heaven, then because we've confronted this horror, we are then open to a greater possibility, that is more possibilities, which echoes what he gives us in the concept of anxiety, where when we are confronted with a lack of possibility, we kind of, we kind of shut into ourselves, it forecloses possibility and we don't have growth. We don't have the possibility for growth. And that puts us here into chapter one. Despair is the sickness unto death, in which he's going to elaborate about this idea that despair is sickness unto death. Not leprosy, not cancer, not, not anything else, 
Despair is the only sickness unto death. Now, I would like to say that for the whole first half of this book, he's going to be concerned, of course, with despair, but he's concerned with the the problems that humans confront when they regard themselves and regard others only as humans, not as beings in the eyes of God. So despair, anxiety are phenomena that affect us both when we regard each other as only human, as only flesh and bone, but it's also they also continue into our being recognized in God's eye. Now, what that means then is that we have to confront despair not as being a problem for like humans only, but something that will continue into this relationship with the divine, even though the divine through faith, through redemption, through atonement is what will alleviate that burden. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. So despair is the sickness and it can have three three forms essentially for uh, Kierkegaard. Either there's the refusal to acknowledge oneself. So you're refusing to acknowledge that you know, you, you have a self. Number two, the refusal not to will to be oneself. So you might recognize that there is a possibility for a self, but you don't want to actually put in the work to attain that. And then number three, despair to will to be oneself. And through the course of this chapter, we're going to elaborate on each of these. So he re reiterates here from the concept of anxiety that spirit is self. Self is, in his words, and this is just from the concept of anxiety, or at least I, pre I presented this in that book, uh, in that episode. Self is a relation that relates itself to itself, or is the relations relating itself to itself in the relation. Now, I don't want to spend a great deal of time explaining that, because you, you probably shouldn't be listening to this episode if you didn't listen to the last one, or at least are familiar with the concept of anxiety, the text. Um, but what he's essentially saying here is that the self is marked by the existence of or presence of spirit, which is the binding glue, the relating glue between, as I already said, the temporal and the eternal, the infinite and the finite body and mind or body and psyche. And it is because of this relating function that we, in order to really be a self, have to acknowledge ourselves not as either fully body or fully spirit or, or fully mind, but as instead the glue being part of the glue that holds these two together. So we don't actually have a kind of like full identity in that way. And we can reconcile this with the qualitative leap or the leap of faith. But in any case, that's what he gives us here. So humans are a relation, the relation of the temporal and the eternal, the of freedom and necessity. Uh, and as such, they form, they are a synthesis. And in this position, the human takes on only an intermediary quality. They are this relating function and are as yet not a self. So it is only when the relation relates itself to itself does the self as spirit kind of emerge. So the real trick here for Kierkegaard is that the self does not emerge from, from within. Like we don't, we don't look in and say, oh, I want, um, you know, the type of car I want is, is a Honda Civic versus a uh, Toyota Corolla. And that is, that is how I determine who I am myself. Or you don't look in and say, oh, I like um, or I feel certain ways in response to certain stimuli. Therefore, these are attributes of myself. That's not how we attain a self here. It doesn't come from within. It comes from without. That is in a relationship with God. And so a proper relation of self to self is actually a relation to an other, to God. Now, whereas with Hegel, it, it is a recognition not 
to God per se, even though that comes out toward the end of the phenomenology, but it is among other selves that recognize themselves as selves. And then we have that capacity to be ourselves. And it, to arrive at this point for Kierkegaard is essentially to root out despair. The closer we get to becoming ourselves, the closer we'll get to God, and therefore the closer, closer we'll get to rooting out despair. Now, God is kind of a limit point that we can't attain. Obviously, none of us can become God, and God is the point in which there is no despair. So in math, the term that I would, I would use is like an asymptote. Now, an asymptote is a line, I guess a, an imaginary line, because it doesn't actually exist per se, that a parabola or a graph um, a kind of function on a graph will never touch. So we are like that parabola in that we come infinitely close, maybe infinitely close, I might be being generous here, but we come as close as we can to this asymptote, but we can never actually touch it, let alone breach it. So despair is something that I will hazard right now for Kierkegaard, can never be effectively removed for the human. It's, it's impossible. Yet there is that possibility of imagining it and lessening it, going closer and closer to that asymptote. But in this movement, and, and in despair, we acknowledge that we have moved or we have given ourselves the potential to have moved beyond animals who don't feel despair. So kind of on both ends of the, the spectrum, if we think about a hierarchy in terms of like living beings on earth where animals are, according to Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard a lower species. So we have lower species animals and then humans and then God. Now, neither God nor the animals experience despair. And I should add a little asterisk here saying that he does consider to some extent God having despair. Uh, but just for now, let's consider hu like the human being the kind of uh, meat between two buns that is between non-despair of animals and non-despair of gods. So humans occupy this liminal space here as well. They occupy the liminal space between the immediate world of like animals and basic things that don't have spirit versus and 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 god that has like all, is all spirit and in that way we get a kind of um kantian thing here where kant uh in i think it's in the critique the second critique in which he describes the ways that humans occupy both um the the noumenal and the, the phenomenal and that gives them a certain privilege on this on this earth but in any case I don't want to go too far into that. So anyway, I digress. Uh, so to move away from animals is to enter despair. And this is mostly, you know, the most open to uh, Christians because he says very clearly that people who aren't properly Christian don't have the same attachment to spirit, don't have this kind of uh, same impetus towards God and are therefore a kind of lesser being, which is obvious, obviously extremely problematic and you know we shouldn't uh, erase this from Kierkegaard's legacy so to be rid of despair is the Christian's blessedness which which again doesn't happen we can't we can't arrive there but Christianity gives us the roadmap to maybe uh, move in that direction at least so it is both that is despair is both the poison and a cure that is it marks our move away from animals yet it is a very troublesome thing in that it you know, produces anxiety, it makes us feel bad, but it gives us this certain privilege on the world stage. Now, we haven't really explained yet what despair is, 
But we know so far that despair is foreclosed, it's not allowed to animals. And because we know that animals don't have spirit, according to Kierkegaard, then that therefore means that there must be something to do with spirit as a relating function, the thing that relates body, mind, temporal, eternal, yada, yada, yada. There must be something there that marks spirit. And what it is for him is that despair is the product of a misrelation of the synthesis, that is, spirit. So such is essentially endemic. It is, it is a part of the possibility of a relation at all, of the possibility of spirit. That is, a misrelation cannot be viewed as some kind of like disease, as though uh, whenever there's spirit, it's like a, it's always a pure relation with no like fault. And then at some point, there's like a, a misrelation that comes in, what the chiropractor calls a subluxation, if anyone's. It's a weird reference, but there's a kind of um, misalignment that the human is then unable to reconcile. But again, it would be wrong to say that this comes from without, as though there was some kind of force that made it happen. And very much in the, in the way that he talks about sin, we don't move from innocence to guilt or from childhood to adulthood through like committing a first sin. We are always already born within sin. Very much in the same way here, we are always already misaligned. That is, spirit is never a perfect uh, kind of connecting point or junction between these other two poles. So it is, it's a continual process for him, this, this misalignment. And he contrasts it to like getting sick. Like if you catch a cold, where you, you never say you are becoming sick. You're either sick or you, you aren't sick. Or your sickness is not like becoming anything. You go from not sick to sick to not sick. Whereas with a misalignment, you can say that the misalignment is always becoming and it's always coming even though it's always there. So with any normal sickness, we are not confronted with a sickness unto death, as I've already alluded to, because physical death is not the end. Only when death marks the end are we presented with sickness unto death and that this is despair. So what is interesting is that this despair does not actually result in death. As such, it turns us to the eternal in its endless magnitude. That is, this despair has a connection to God and is therefore a turning or turns us towards towards God and the possibility that God's, God implies in the form of possibility itself, in the form of the infinite, and so on. And the despair is produced when at that moment we realize that we are kind of, we're like, oh my God, I am turned to eternity right now and I have to spend eternity in this kind of flesh prison that, uh, that I'm in, in which there's always going to be uh, an impure alignment between myself and my spirit or and my mind, between uh, my place in the earthly world of imminence versus the divine world of transcendence. And I am essentially, I'm trapped there. Like there's nothing more I can do. So one of the greatest struggles and contradictions of despair is that it is both, it both signals an effect, uh, or sorry, an effort to despise oneself and an effort to become one's own non-despairing uh, self. So, you, you, you know, you, you look at yourself with disdain and say, God, I can't believe I'm stuck with myself like this. But at the same time, you want to come to terms with that in order to try to alleviate the burden of despair which is essentially an impossibility because in despair we are arrested from actually embracing that possibility, actually embracing ourselves as ourselves. Not even death can, can save us in that way. 
And this is ultimately the price for having a self signaling that, you know, we can't just take it off. And that puts us here into chapter two, the universality of this sickness that is despair. When we're thinking about the sickness unto death as despair. So everyone despairs, as I think should already be clear, both Christians and non-Christians despair. But of course, Christians experience a more uh, full form of despair. And it is rare for someone not to be in despair, if it can be said at all. Despite this, many believe themselves to not be in despair, and they are just harboring uh, certain illusions. They are laboring under the illusion that they are not in despair. But like a physically sick person, they do not know that they are actually sick and demand an expert's diagnosis to make it real. So we need like Kierkegaard is essentially, uh, and here we get a little bit more of his idea about the psychological impetus of his project. It comes down to this expert of anxiety, of, psycho of psychology, of despair, to actually reveal how people are always in despair. So whereas when someone is sick, they are qualitatively different versus when they are uh, not sick. When someone is in despair, they may appear no different than when in non-despair, that is to themselves. If they believe themselves to not be in despair and then in despair, they aren't actually different. They just came to terms or acknowledged how they were always in despair. And whereas someone's viewed with sadness when they become sick, the same is true only of the person who has never experienced despair. So it's like, imagine not being sad at someone who gets sick because despair is something we all experience. It's not like we should really feel too much when it happens. Only then can they be turned into the possibility of emancipation from despair, or can they be turned toward that possibility? So we try to deny the presence of despair by engaging in artificial demonstrations of the self. So we, uh, you know, we buy the car that we want, or we uh, online shop, or do certain activities that are meant to be character traits, uh, or demonstrate our characteristics in such a way that we think them to be only ours. But of course, uh, that doesn't. These are all superficial ways to demonstrate one's self, at least according to Kierkegaard. So you can either take it or leave it. What he's given you here, but in any case, he thinks those are all cosmetic and not actually meaningful. So when we do this, we never truly acknowledge the self as existing before God, which is just echoing what I've already uh, said here. And here we move into chapter three: the forms of this sickness, the forms of despair. So when we are in despair, we can either be uh, conscious about it or not. So like I've, like I've already said, either people know about it or not. Just because they know about it or not, though, doesn't mean that they aren't always in despair. They just don't know about it. So the more consciousness one has of their despair and of themselves, the more self and the more freedom they will have. So to have more self is to be more conscious of the synthesis of the self as the relation between the infinite and the finite, you know, between possibility and necessity, so on and so forth. However, because such a synthesis synthesis is only truly in line with God, this is a process of removing self. So to put that in other terms, as we come to terms with ourself as a relating being, this kind of uh, notion of spirit, then we are actually becoming less ourselves because we are acknowledging ourselves in the eyes of God as our creator who has willed the possibility for there to be freedom essentially so in this process of coming more and more to to terms with oneself we actually lose ourselves in our becoming more and more 
uh, in line with God. And this, like he presented in the concept of anxiety, is one of the dialectical moments of this selfness, where we are both ourselves and not ourselves. So the dialectic is maintaining two contradictory points without one overtaking the other. So what we get with that is a, is a contradiction, but we can resolve this contradiction with the qualitative leap, with the leap of faith, accepting that we are both ourselves and not ourselves. So we are both a self to us and we are a self to God. So we must look at ourselves imminently, like at our uh, you know, bodies, our interests, uh, what comes from within us. And we must do that essentially to reveal what is not ours, what is not from ourselves, which is a, comes from God, which is transcendence. So we use imminence to arrive at transcendence here. And we, we hear this uh, also echoed in Deleuze and Guattari's work as well in A Thousand Plateaus, but I won't, I don't like making, dropping names like that, so sorry. But anyways, we get a similar argument there. Now, it is necessary, Kierkegaard says, for us to be looking imminently to ourselves to arrive at transcendence, because if we tried to bypass the self, this kind of physical, immediate self that we occupy, we tried to bypass that and just look to God. So think, for example, of the people who, uh, the ascetic priests who like whip their bodies. Uh, and I don't know how, how Kierkegaard would actually respond to this, this um, metaphor, but in any case, imagine those people who like whip their bodies and they think um, this is just like flesh. I am not important. Nothing about me is important. I must only exist before God. I think Kierkegaard would not like that because if we just look to God, that is, we tried to bypass the imminence, we tried to bypass ourselves, then we would just get caught in fantasy. We would just get caught in, in uh, imaginary constructions and frivolous speculation that doesn't actually arrive at anything meaningful. It would just be uh, fairy dust. But again, you know, we can never actually accomplish this tax task entirely because we can't actually arrive at the divine. So this, this despair is always going to remain with us. The same when we're dealing with infinity versus finity between, um, our, you know, ourselves and, and God. So being toward possibility and necessity can lead to despair as well. So we must acknowledge that our possibility is our necessity, like how being aware of our finitude opens the door for the infinite. So too much possibility or too much necessity, where possibility is like the infinite and necessity is like our immediate like body, too much of either of those leads to despair. So if we submit too much to possibility, our necessity becomes more fleeting and, and vice versa. An actuality for Kierkegaard here is a combination, a steady equilibrium of both possibility and necessity. Because we wouldn't have actuality if we were only necessity, because that would foreclose opportunities and possibility and change. And because actuality is predicated upon the possibility for change, the possibility for adaptation, which would signal freedom, then that would close off actuality. Whereas if we had only possibility and no necessity, we would have no steady ground from which to actually delineate or to establish an idea of a self that can be considered actual. So the same for, for both. So in addition to infinity, infinitude, possibility, necessity, there is the possibility for despair out of consciousness and unconsciousness. So ignorance versus knowledge. Those who are ignorant often supplant the 
exigencies of the soul with sensate ones. So we, uh, those who don't think or don't have the kind of uh, knowledgeable faculties or the cognitive faculties to make certain leaps to understand what the, the kind of um, God's plan essentially is to just give oneself over to their immediate body, their immediate senses, immediate pleasures that doesn't get us anywhere really. So, however, those who are conscious are presented with two possible routes to despair themselves. Like, even if you are ultimately conscious, you can still lead, be led in a kind of negative uh, direction. And this will bring us back to those three points he'd made earlier, where there is the possibility for the refusal to acknowledge oneself, there is the refusal not to will to be oneself, and there's the despair to will to be oneself. So here he's going to elaborate on those once again. Or, well, he never really elaborated on them earlier, but in any case, we're going to get into them here. So for the conscious person, for the knowledgeable person here, either the despair in their consciousness in, is in their conscious refusal of themselves or in their conscious incapacity to be themselves. So either they say, I don't want to be myself, or they, they, they can't. They despair to will to be oneself. They don't have that capacity. So when we despair not to will to be oneself, we despair in weakness. We, we don't have that capacity to actually get there. And this is often to give oneself over to immediacy and earthly sensations, uh, earthly matters that, that don't connect us to spirit or to the eternal. Now, he'll come to say that to actually be concerned primarily with earthly affairs is also to be concerned with eternal ones because we are all humans under God, ultimately, so we are always already pointed towards the eternal. But in any case, this is kind of how it starts here. So to be conscious is to have more despair. However, it is important to differentiate between correct consciousness of despair and false consciousness of despair. Those who think their despair can be alleviated with earthly things should be looked at suspiciously, like that's obviously not something that can happen. Uh, only with proper connection to God can that possibly happen. So the person that's given primarily over to earthly things doesn't actually develop a proper understanding of despair, how it can be resolved, and where it, where it comes from, ultimately. So in misattributing originating point of despair, they do not develop a will to be oneself, in that they aren't actually working towards becoming the proper self. So to despair over the earthly is also to despair over the eternal, insofar as it is from, from the eternal that their despair truly ushers. However, this person is, is different from the one concerned with earthly affairs because they have some knowledge of the eternal. And so they are not weak per se, but they despair over their, their weakness to not fully grasp it, the eternal as relation to God, to self, to spirit. So they are a person that doesn't look to earthly affairs to kind of figure out their life. They instead actually acknowledge that there is something more than what they immediately experience but they don't have the capacity to actually embrace that. They are, they are stuck uh, with themselves, even though they know they have the, the knowledge, the consciousness of their being more. And that leads to itself a kind of despair. So that person continues to despair over the earthly because it is holding them back from achieving their kind of true uh, self. That is the, that's all they can do, even though they have more knowledge. And this is called for Kierkegaard enclosing reserve. And it is a prime contributor to suicide for him because this is the person that has knowledge that they can be more, 
um, that has the consciousness, consciousness, but they don't have the capacity to actually embrace that. And that leads to a very strong sense of despair that the person who is ignorant doesn't have. Because if you're ignorant, you're totally satisfied with what is ultimately incorrect for Kierkegaard or what is unmeaningful. Now, these were the forms of despair characterized by a kind of weakness, like an incapacity to become the thing you want, want to be or need to be in the eyes of God. But there is another form, and that is despair is marked by defiance, which is like to offend, to, to, to uh, rally against God. So this is despair through the aid of the eternal, the despairing, sorry, the despairing misuse of the eternal within the self to will in despair to be oneself. So here we are getting closer to being, coming closer to getting rid of despair by truly, as best as we can, aligning ourselves with God but are as yet infinitely far away from the truth because we can't actually get there, but we can, we can get closer. So in defiance, despair emerges from a consciousness of the self, but it does not have the humility to shed that self and remain stubbornly attached to it. It tries to master itself, leading only to imagining constructions of self. Such is the acting self. So this is the person that obstinately or stubbornly thinks them to have attain this proper degree of, of knowledge uh, about this these matters and so wholeheartedly gives themselves over to it without actually uh, embracing the fact that in order for this to be truly realized depends upon both an acknowledgement of self which is where they're at but also a, a, a necessary shedding of that self in order to fully embrace the capacity of spirit as transformation and here we move into essential part two of the book so uh with chapter four that is despair is sin and that may have seen seemed abrupt but we're going to continue on with these ideas as we go through here so it is only when we are before god that is in the eyes of god that despair becomes a product of sin sin determines weakness or defiance of despair because sin is what is presupposed from adam's uh first sin which was presupposed by the very possibility of a sin itself as a circle not as a not as a line and in this way sin and despair form a kind of dialectical pair themselves they are uh kind of they exist together now he presents an interesting phenomenon here and that is the idea or the phenomenon of poet existence at least in the english translation now the poet for kierkegaard is someone who is concerned too much with externalizing their emotions by putting it into language, into flowery language, without actually looking at themselves in a meaningful way, which is kind of an aside, but it's just something he throws in there. So they only have a cosmetic relationship to God, at least that's, um, that's what Kierkegaard says. And we must consider really what a human is before God, that is in the eyes of God, under the criterion of God. And the reason that this is necessary is because who we are before, who we are existing in the eyes of, will very much determine who we are. So, for example, a cattleman is a very low being because he is only before cattle. He only, he's only seen in the eyes of cattle. We must orient ourselves to be before God. Only when we acknowledge this can we come to terms with our always being before God and, and as such always being in sin and being guilty in sin. The more our conception of the self intensifies, so does our relationship to God. Only at that moment can we comprehend our infinite composition, which is all essentially echoing what we've already said, but in any case. 
And he writes here that sin is, this is what sin is, before God in despair not to will to be oneself or before God in despair to will to be oneself. This definition captures all specific examples of sin because, for example, a murderer, someone who murders or someone who steals, any, you know, anyone committing specific sins uh, is actually the demonstration of either a despair to be oneself or, or not, not to be oneself in that they are embrace, embracing a false self too much, which is an idea that comes out in the earlier Kierkegaard where there's kind of um, a distinction between a true self and a false self in his other works. And we can hear this echoed in the work of like uh, the psychoanalyst Winnicott as well with um, the sort of split between the true and the false self. But in any case, the murderer or the sinner is a person who either fully embraces themselves in the wrong way and so feels themselves to be justified in doing bad things or they have refused to take on a self and therefore are see themselves as being responsible to no one not not even themselves so faith is the opposite to sin in that it is the self being itself before god faith demonstrating one's willingness to give oneself over to god without needing the earthly constructions of like logic or consistency or anything like that. So now against those who regard Christianity as a low form of ethical imperatives, Kierkegaard says that it is actually the highest because it acknowledges the entire human race as being before the highest being, God. So Christianity gives us this. Apparently other religions don't, but that's what we have here. So we are given this privilege before God and many do not believe it and so are offended. They are offended. To be in sin is then also to be in ignorance. This comes from Socrates, at least as early as Socrates. But because God, uh, Socrates wasn't working in a kind of Christian mind frame, his concept of ignorance, that we all know nothing from those that uh, know a little bit or don't know anything about Socrates, Socrates kind of famously said, at least through Plato's texts, that the only thing we can truly be certain about is that we know we know nothing. So this conception of ignorance, this idea about ignorance, according to Socrates, isn't really a great one because it's not Christian in that it doesn't acknowledge that our knowing nothing is a product of our kind of immediate um, being and doesn't actually reveal the truth of, of the matter in that we are in the eyes of the all-knowing of God. So that can only be treated, Socrates' work can only be treated as a kind of starting point for what we are doing here. And the same for the Socratic mantra, know thyself, or you must know yourself, which is only a good starting point. But if this knowing yourself is not geared towards coming closer to God, then it is just for the immediate. That doesn't actually help us with anything meaningful for Kierkegaard. So additionally, Kierkegaard is not satisfied with the idea that we are all like ignorant in, so in Socrates' words, because Kierkegaard says that ignorance is a sign of sin. And that is, that is bad. And he uses this to deploy it against what he calls pagans, non-Christians, essentially, as being like a, having a lower form of existence because they don't have this knowledge of sin. So uh, these pagans might only view sin as specific acts, like doing something bad, murdering, for example, instead of it always being there. Or states like weakness, sensuousness, finitude, whatever. So to say that it is, uh, it is to position virtue against sin, remember only faith, opposes sin. It, so it would be wrong, I should say, to oppose virtue to sin. 
So, and it, you know, we get this kind of in Aristotle as well, but the idea of virtue as being uh, a corrective to sin is entirely wrong for Kierkegaard because that's too uh, strictly attached to earthly affairs because virtue is just conducted or realized through doing earthly things instead of actually connecting oneself to God. Like being virtuous for Aristotle demands the, you know, exercising the right amount and, and eating the right things and giving the right amount of your wealth to people and, and so on, which are just, just earthly things. Now, given all this, it has to be noted that Kierkegaard doesn't just embrace Christianity full stop. He sees most Christianity as actually being devoid of this kind of reflection and spirit that he applauds, where he says that it's so easy to become like a pastor. Like, there are too many, essentially, and most of them have no idea what they're actually doing. They don't actually understand the word of God in relation to sin and what repentance, what atonement, what faith mean in uh, response to sin. So that's just an important detail to put out there. And that propels us here into chapter five, the continuance of sin. So each sin is a new sin, but is also hereditary sin from, and this is from the concept of anxiety where no new sin is really totally new. It, it belongs to a history of sin. So when we lose sight of this, we too easily just regard our lives as sinful and so there's nothing to be done about it. So if we forget that sin is always already there, but it is always already there in God's eyes, then um, if we lose sight of that, then we can so easily just be like, well, what can we do about it? There's nothing we can do about it because it's meant to happen. But remember that anxiety and despair are things that we don't enjoy. And if it was true that there was nothing we could do about it, if it was just part of us and there was nothing we could do, then we wouldn't feel these sensations. We wouldn't feel anxious. We wouldn't feel despair in the wake of the possible, in the wake of the infinite. So there must be a way to reconcile an attachment to the infinite that alleviates, at least to some extent, these feelings of despair and anxiety. So sin is, is a cycle, right? But its cycle can be disrupted through faith. So faith is what gives us this, this way out to some extent. So we should look at sin as a continuum. So not as just like individual moments. And he gives the example, uh, the illusion of a train, where we don't see a train moving only when, it, when the puff comes out of the top of uh, the chimney that it has, but it's moving along all the way and each puff is continuing to this, this momentum, this movement. So to forget con the continuity of sin is to be unconscious and to erase spirit. The continuity of sin is actually what holds, I guess, a person together deep down where he has sunk, profanely strengthening him with its consistency. So don't get it twisted here. The continuity of sin should not make it transparent. It is still a break from the good. Like it's still a, the demonstration of bad things. And it's not like Kierkegaard is saying, oh, well, we have to weaken ourselves through sin in order to be better. And we do that by like murdering people. No, it's about it, it firstly acknowledging that sin is always already there. And only in that moment can we then come to terms with it and come to terms with our weakness and come to terms with uh, ourselves as a self that we must work to shed. And it is only with Christ, Jesus Christ, that sin can be first forgiven because he introduces the possibility for forgiveness. And there is open the possibility for atonement and faith. 
It teaches us to be free from despairing over forgiveness of sins as though it was impossible to forgive. So with Christ, we are actually given possibility with the act of forgiveness. So it's not as though we just sin and that's it. We're just meant to sin. With forgiveness, there's actually the possibility for uh, an alleviation of sin. And it is Christianity that acknowledges that we are both sinners and belong to uh, hereditary sin, and sin presupposes us. Christianity acknowledges this. So we are obviously different from God then in that we, we sin and God, only God has the capacity to forgive. But in any case, we acknowledge then there is the possibility to alleviate this burden. And when God chooses to forgive or punish, he does so only individually. And this is important to note. When, when God uh, forgives, he does it for an individual person. Just like when God punishes, he punishes only individuals. Now, for anyone familiar with the Bible, you'd probably remember that pretty early on, God floods the entire earth, which I think conflicts with what uh, Kierkegaard is saying here. Or he destroys Sodom, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, leaving only Lot and his two daughters to flee. But that seems to me to be the demonstration of God judging not individuals, but judging a mass. Now, the reason that that is not the case, at least in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, is that there's a process in which God arrives at the conclusion that he has to kill everyone in that city. In that, I think it was Lot, is like, hey, God, um, don't kill everyone. <laughs> and and God is like, if you can find me, I think it's 50 people who are worth like keeping alive, then I won't destroy the cities. And Lot is like, okay, I can't do it. And then God comes back to him and says, well, 40 people? Lot says, no, I can't do it. 30, 20, 10? And Lot can't do it. So then Jesus, oh Jesus, God is like, oh, well, then I have individually judged everyone to be bad. So I'm going to individually, I'm going to kill each individual, but they just happen to all be together. So uh, that's how it's going to happen, which is obviously really messed up. And I, this God is a terrible person. If we can call him a person. But in any case, that is what he does. And he judges on an individual basis, not collectively. So when God chooses to forgive or punish, he does so only individually. If he burns a city down, it is because each individual was deserving of it. Not that people were in lockstep, like he was judging everyone as though they were all the same. Only God can sway the human genome, can sway humanity. And so if there was a mass action that God judged en masse, if he judged an entire action, a mass action, he wouldn't actually be able to judge it because it would have been his own doing. The only way that humans can be judged en masse is if there was something wrong with humans themselves. So what many do, this is Kierkegaard's words, what many do is God's will, whereas what individuals do is their own will. So it would be a great violence for this for the individual to ignore Christ and God, but as yet an even greater vice would be to view Christianity as a lie. And he concludes the book here by saying that in relating itself to itself and in willing to be itself, the self rests transparently in the power that established it. This formula is the definition of faith. And that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, there's Kierkegaard's two really important texts. I don't imagine I'll do any more Kierkegaard, but maybe I will. 
Uh, if there's anything I excluded or anything I mischaracterized, I'd love to hear about it. If uh, you know you don't like what I did here, there's a dislike button for that. If you like what I did, uh, you know, like, share, subscribe, tune in next week. I'll have something else for you. And yeah, take care.